Here is Aaron Judge. He's at 270. 16 homers, 38 RBIs. Judge hits one to deep center. It is high. It is far. It is gone. It hit the backdrop. The batter's protection backdrop over the dead center field wall. A Judgian blast. A two-run home run. All rise. Here comes the Judge. Sometimes you just never know which one of these surgeries is going to be the one that is just really hard to shake, really hard to heal from. You know, it's funny because this happened to me in 2009 when I had my Nissen fundoplication surgery. It was a really, really difficult recovery, and I kind of didn't expect that. And uh, that made things really difficult for me because you just, I just kind of didn't see it coming, and I feel like... It's that way again. Uh, welcome to uh, Season 9, Episode 15 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. And I'm going a little slower than I hope, but I feel like business is about to pick up. we got a great show for you today. Mike Triplett from the NFL Nation feature on ESPN.com. And ESPN is going to join us to talk about the Saints. Every August, I like to do 30 minutes or so on the Saints. Uh, and we're going to do that today with Mike Triplett. Also on the show today, uh, an interview that I recorded uh, the other day um, and really enjoyed doing with Stuart Mandel. Stuart's been coming on this podcast since 2011. He's one of the OGs. Uh, he's been coming on every year, anytime I call on him, really. Uh, and I was hoping to interview him earlier in the month, and uh, we had some scheduling issues and we worked it out, and Stewart's going to join us today to preview the college football season. College football had week zero last week. Florida beat Miami kind of in the the uh, the big game there, and, and now this weekend is week one, and Oklahoma's going to play on my birthday, a night game on my birthday, so I'll probably uh, enjoy that for sure. They play Houston, I believe. We'll see what Jalen Hurts looks like and see if we get a chance to see Spencer Rattler. Uh, who was on the show QB1, one of the featured quarterbacks on that. My brother Anthony and I love to uh, watch QB1. So that's what we're doing today. We have those two guests. Also, I got some stuff in the works. Uh, Richard Deitch is going to be on the next program. Richard and I are going to speak on Friday and record that interview. Richard will preview... Uh, the NFL and NCAA football from a media perspective. We'll see how things are going for Richard up in the Great White North in Canada, where he lives now in Toronto with his family. Uh, so we'll speak to Richard. Speaking of an OG, uh, I believe Richard appeared on episode three of this podcast uh, back in 2011. So we will have Richard on. Another thing I've been working really hard on is an interview with Conrad Thompson. I don't know if you guys know Conrad. Conrad is, of course, the host of Something to Wrestle and some other great wrestling podcasts. And he was one of the guests with me on Richard's podcast. And I want to talk to him uh, about his empire and 
He keeps saying, yes, I'll do it, uh, but I haven't spoke to him. Uh, we've been down this road before, but I'm going to stay on him. Hopefully that uh, does happen because I'd love to talk uh, talk to talk to Conrad. Uh, as for me, you know, I'm just trying to heal, get a little bit better every day, as they say. I went to see Bad Company at Art Park uh, and got caught walking way too much and uh, was hurting for a few days. But it was great to see Paul Rogers and Simon Kirk uh, of Bad Company listen to them play the songs. And I got this box set. They put out a box set of their first six albums, which are really uh, the six you know, Bad Company albums, uh, all from the Swan Song record label, uh, which was started by Led Zeppelin. And they put out this nice box set, and I ordered it. And uh, my daughter Paula, who loves when a package comes, uh, was all over that. And um, she wanted me to uh, take her down to the basement to listen to it. We set up our music and everything. And uh, she really enjoyed the song Silver, Blue, and Gold. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I'm trying to think if there's anything else really to update or probably just get right into the show. Uh, we're going to do Stewart first. We'll preview the college football season. And I'll back. Be back with a book club update, which is a big one this week. We got two new books, which are really cool. I'm excited to talk about giveaways for both. Then we'll talk to Mike Triplett uh, about the Saints, and then I'll be back. Uh, we'll do some plugs. And one last thing on five years of marriage. I had my fifth year anniversary since the last podcast, and I want to do uh, quickly talk about five years of marriage uh, in one last thing. So that's the deal for the show today. Uh, I appreciate everyone who's been sticking with me through this year. It's been a really tough 2019. And because of that, I am going to New Orleans. Uh, I am going to the October 6th game, the Saints versus the Buccaneers. Traveling down there myself. Uh, Book the Intercontinental Hotel there. Short walk from the stadium. I can't wait. Uh, I kind of need it. I've been through a lot this year. Uh, My wife was totally on board with me doing it, which is great. So I'm excited about that, and we'll talk more about that as we get closer to it. But uh, that's the plan for today. Let's kind of get going. I'm going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Stuart Mandel from The Athletic. Our first guest today is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he is a graduate of Northwestern in Chicago, and he is one of the OGs of the sportscasters. Nice enough to join us again today to talk college football. Warm sportscasters, welcome to our friend, Stuart Mandel. What's going on, Stuart? How you doing, buddy? Good, Steve. How are you? Very good. Welcome back. You know, we always used to joke way back when we started doing this together in 2011. Believe it or not, we've been talking since 2011. We used to joke about how... We only talked to each other when there was a college football scandal going on. And it seems like we've now transitioned to we only talk to each other when it's time to preview the college football season. So we've moved from we've moved from the scandal call to the preview call. Those were a rough couple of years, 2010, 2011. Oh. Um, it just seemed like there was one scandal after another after another. I don't want to jinx it, but <laughs> things have been a little quieter lately. Yeah, those are brutal. It's like every day. It's like, oh, that text. Stewart, see what he knows about North Carolina or what, you know, I don't even know if it was them. I feel bad even saying that, but I thought maybe, but I don't know. I'm just mentioning it. Anyway, it's week zero has happened. 
We're getting ready for week one. Um, let's do one question on week zero. You mentioned it in your column today. You walk away from that game saying, I don't know if Florida is a top 10 team, right? I mean, that's what I kind of felt like. Is that the impression you took? Or what was your overall view on Florida after that? Yeah, you try not to overreact to one game, obviously. You know, we don't know how good or bad either of those teams are going to be. I had concerns about Florida coming into the season. I did not think they were necessarily going to be a top 10 team. And I would say that the first game didn't really do anything to, to alleviate those concerns. Um, you know, and, and that might seem strange to say. They won the game. They they had 10 sacks on defense. That's pretty impressive. Um, but, you know, I think whereas Miami was breaking in a freshman quarterback who is going to take his loss and, and two freshman tackles, for that matter, you know, Felipe Franks is in his third year as Florida starter, and he's he has his highlights and he has his lowlights, and he has his, you know, he had handed four turnovers the other day. So, um, you know, that could limit Florida this season. They've obviously got uh, a very good defense, and that will uh, help them be in the race throughout the SEC. Um, but if the quarterback play continues to be inconsistent, and by the way, they too are breaking in four new offensive linemen, you know, that could be a problem. One thing for me that always makes a great college football season are the non-conference matchups. Like, I'm just thinking of, like, Baker Mayfield planting the flag at Ohio State. I'm thinking of um, Florida State and Alabama, and Florida State loses their quarterback in the game, and Alabama wins kind of changes the balance of that season. And this is just two off the very top of my head. What what are some of the non-conference matchups in September – uh, that you think have the potential to shape the season? What are some that you're really focusing on as big matchups this year? Well, I think the two you know, best or biggest non-conference games are not this weekend necessarily. I mean, we have a, you know, I think Auburn-Oregon is very interesting and it has implications, ramifications in terms of both the Pac-12 and the being in the playoff conversation this year. They could really use a win like that. And then obviously Auburn, uh, I think that the consensus is that Gus Malzahn's coaching for his job this year. I can say that most years, but but definitely true this year. Right. Um, but in terms of the, the, the games kind of like that would be most likely to produce a couple of the moments you just mentioned, you've got LSU at Texas next week. Uh, that's a huge game for both programs who are both trying to show that they are back where they used to be. And Sam Ellinger has a little bit of that Baker Mayfield quality in him and that he's a really good quarterback who, for whatever reason, a lot of the fans of the other teams like to hate. And I think the biggest game of the, of the non-conference will be uh, later in September when Georgia visits Notre, I mean, when Notre Dame visits Georgia. When they played a couple years ago in South Bend, it was really cool. The, the, there was a lot of red in the stands. It went right down to the wire. So we're going to find out real quick, is Notre Dame another, does, do they have another playoff run in them? They're going to go play a team that's ranked number three in the country who is actually my pick to win the national championship. So obviously a very tough matchup for them. What is the health of the non-conference game, these matchups in the playoff era? We're, what, four or five years into the playoff now, and I think teams are kind of feeling out and understanding more what it takes to get to the playoffs, what your schedule needs to look like. Obviously, you know, you win all the games, you're probably going to get there. But beyond that, you know, how does a one – lost team how can you put yourself above the other ones things like that 
when they look at that and they think about non-conference, what do you see the future of the non-conference game under this system? How do you see it changing, evolving, staying the same? Well, it's been very. This off season has been very encouraging to see a lot of the big name programs scheduling uh, high profile home and homes. Uh, now, some of those are 12, 15 years away, but Georgia, for example. Uh, a, a team that hasn't really scheduled uh, a lot of big games out of conference. If they did, it was usually a neutral site game. You know, Kirby Smart has said that they're going to take on all comers. They have one year uh, in the future where they're going to have three power five opponents, which is unheard of for an SEC team. You know, Alabama hasn't played a road non-conference game since 2010, I believe, against Penn State. They've kind of owned these neutral site games in Atlanta or Arlington. Yeah, the Dallas but there's one, a shift going on there too. Yeah, they're they've scheduled home and homes in Notre Dame and Texas. And I think this is kind of independent of the playoff. You know, the playoff people had high hopes going into it that it would incentivize strong scheduling, but we haven't seen that. You know, to this point, basically it's been about losing the fewest games, just like in in the previous eras of the sport. There were there were a couple exceptions to that, but for the most part Weak non-conference schedules have not really hurt teams. Now, I think what you're seeing with, with some of the announcements I just talked about is, is not about the playoff. It's about attendance problems. Schools are – you can't take it for granted that you're going to sell out your 100,000-seat stadium anymore. Uh, the, the attendance is declining across the board. So the best way to combat that, obviously, is schedule games that people care about. And I think that Alabama, for one, recognizes that they can't play three games against Sunbelt FCS teams and expect everybody to come. So they're going to beef up their home schedule and, and a lot of others are as well. Do you think that's just a product of fans? Like it's almost like in the playoff, like let's say you're an Alabama fan, you have to make a decision going into that first game. Like, am I going to put out all this money to travel to see the semi? Or am I going to wait and see if maybe we're in the final and go to that? Do you think it's that way with home games too? Like, Hey, you know, Maybe I'm not a season ticket guy, and and then maybe they fill the season the stadium with say 80. percent So those other 20 percent of people are saying, you know what, I want to go to one conference game and maybe a non-conference game. But if the non-conference game isn't against someone that I think it'll be a decent game, I'll just stay home. I got a 60 inch plasma air conditioning. I said plasma. It's probably not plasma. You know what I mean? Uh, air conditioning. <laughs> you know, wings on the grill. Whatever. Like, is is that where you feel the the shift? Why that's happening? It's not like lack of interest in we've Alabama football, Yeah, we've right? written a lot about that, and people seem to be really interested in this topic. And I don't think there's one reason, but there's no question that both college football games have become very expensive, especially for season tickets where you're expected to make a donation just to be able to buy the season tickets. And the TV product has just gotten better and better and better. There are more games on TV. They are higher quality uh, broadcast. So, you know, whereas an earlier generation, my generation, there was – you wanted to, you had to be at the game. That was, it was all about being there in person. Uh, I think that a lot of people still feel that way, obviously. I mean, for a lot of people going and tailgating and being with their friends is, is uh, their favorite part of the year. But maybe if you're on the fence a little bit, you're, it's exactly what you just said. Am I going to shell out all this money to see my team play Georgia Southern? Or am I going to stay home, watch it on TV? And all oh, by the way, uh, there's a huge primetime game on ABC I want to watch too that I couldn't see if I go to the game. So, uh, you know, I think it's something that all, um, I mean, all the pro leagues are dealing with this as well to some degree in terms mm-hmm. of 
uh, the t- you know the, 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 it's harder and harder to get people into the stands. That's why, you know, frankly, when you see new stadiums being built, they maximize for the suite holders because they they don't necessarily count on the revenue from um, the average Joe, if you will, sitting in the other seats. But uh, I think that it snuck up on college football uh, ads because it's just been kind of ingrained in the culture for all of college football history. You go there as a student, you fall in love with it. You come back, you tailgate with your fellow alums. Uh, you know, Alabama. If any, if there's any team that shouldn't have to worry about an attendance, right? It would be Alabama. They, their fan, they have got the best program and are one of the two best programs. But you know, even their fans are saying enough's enough. We uh, aren't going to pay all this money to see games we're not interested in. Right, and it seems like the programs have even beyond scheduling. It's game day experience that they're focusing on, right? And the NFL, I know, is in on this too. Like you said, with the, you know sushi in the suite or whatever or yep. you know the fancy wi-fi in certain areas or you know whatever they're doing to try to enhance instead of just giving you a seat to stand in front of it's okay when he's standing well, in front remember, of that seat, another big difference by the way you know i've been to the to the mercedes-benz stadium in atlanta and cal the, uh, jerry world college stadiums for the most part are old they're they're right. from they were built in the 1920s it's you know, the long lines to get to the bathroom and the concourses are really crowded. So, you know, we, I think schools took for granted that fans are going to be willing to, you know, there's a lot, you, you have to put up with a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic atmosphere once you get there, but you got to sit in traffic. You've got to, um, you know, deal with the, some of the things I was just talking about in terms of the in-stadium experience. You, you know, lots of those college stadiums, there's no Wi-Fi, which matters now. So, you know, I think it has been interesting to see what various schools are trying to do to combat that. And it's not realistic that you're just going to, you know, tear, Oklahoma's going to tear down its stadium and build a new one. But a lot of these stadiums that I go to, and maybe I only go there every couple of years, and every time I go, it looks, I mean, Notre Dame Stadium is unrecognizable from on the inside from what it used to be. Uh, Kyle Field at Texas A&M looks completely different. You know, they're always trying to add new bells and whistles. Yeah, I went to Oklahoma in 2013. No, yeah, 2013, November 2013. And, I mean, it was in construction in the middle of the season. You know what I mean? Like, as they were kind of closing off the one side, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that stuff's always going on. Let me ask you this since we brought up Oklahoma. So, they did the stoops to Lincoln-Riley thing, and that's meant two playoff appearances, two first overall picks, two Eisman Trophy winners. Uh, Urban Meyer left, and it seems like they're kind of trying to – to do, to you know do the same thing like that in-house transition this is my guy we're going to slide him in here we're not going to miss a beat these are it's the same guy that recruited guys we're not going to lose people on that avenue what do you think about Ohio State do you see that comparison there are more teams going to want to try to piggyback on the success of how OU made the transition um what about that theory in my mind or am I just overthinking it as an OU guy kind of well yeah, there's no question that when they when they made the announcement um, right after last season, Gene Smith flat out, you know, the Ohio State's AD flat out said he thought Ryan Day could be their Lincoln Riley. They didn't even bother to, you know, he said he surveyed the landscape and, and there were names he considered interviewing and he decided he'd rather just promote Ryan Day, and that's fine. But, I mean, I think it's hard to separate what Lincoln Riley's done from what Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray did. He... Had those those were quarterbacks who transferred into the program, 
before uh, before Lincoln Riley even became the head coach. So, and now he's got another one like that, Jalen Hurst. So I think Ryan Day's, you know, uh, chance of success here or how successful he's going to be right off the bat is now completely tied to that of Justin Fields, the Georgia transfer quarterback. He's all they got. Tate Martell transferred. Matthew Baldwin, Baldwin transferred uh, after Fields. It was clear Fields was going to win the job. So he's not – it's a little bit different. I mean, he's not uh, – he was a big-time recruit, obviously, just like Kyler Murray was. But we haven't seen him yet. He, he barely played at Georgia last year. Right. So I, I, I'm very fascinated to see it. Obviously, much like Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day is known as a QB guru. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what he's done with him. One quick OU thing, since we mentioned it, you mentioned Hurts. Do you think Spencer Rattler seriously challenged for that job at all? Or do you think that was just kind of like, ah, let's promote a little competition, the kid will get better? Yeah, that was a yeah. preordained one that, right. uh, you know, some coaches feel like they, I think, you know, in that case, I think uh, it was just to show some respect to the guys that were already there, that you're not going to automatically anoint the guy who came from somewhere else. Right. Uh, every coach handles it differently. I think Washington's known for a while that Jacob Eason was going to be their quarterback, but he, Chris Peterson held off announcing it until last weekend, and then immediately the guy he was fighting with the job for immediately transferred. Same thing at Mississippi State. So, you know, that that definitely plays a role as well. Um, you want to be absolutely sure because there's a very good chance once you do name the starter, you're going to immediately lose the guys behind him. Right, our new favorite thing, right, the portal. So-and-so has entered the portal. It's like, oh, boy. Yep. They're in the portal. Um, I was reading your column, uh, Forward Pass, which is one of the great columns on The Athletic. You can read all of Stewart's stuff on The Athletic, which continues to be one of the great values in uh, in sports content uh, on the Internet. And Stewart's there. It's been there for a few years. And Forward Pass is a fantastic article. And it, it, the, you started with the eight important storylines of week one. And we could talk about that, and that'd be cool. But you already wrote about that. I'm wondering, on the next page of your notebook, is there a thing that says the eight storylines of the season? And which one of those, one or two, are you most excited to see play out? You know, what is it that you have kind of penciled in as, oh, I want to see how that goes really badly. And you're ready to, you're already ready for the, to, to make the notes and maybe put it in a column sometime. Well, I kind of mentioned one already. You know, I definitely think that the, Ohio well, I think both Jalen Hurts, you know, kind of the unprecedented move here of Jalen Hurts to Oklahoma, but also Ohio State post Urban Meyer with Justin Fields. If you want to link that also to what's going on with Michigan and Josh Gaddis coming in and trying to revolutionize Jim Harbaugh's offense, and, you know, that rivalry has another uh, dimension to it now this season. Um, I think USC is going to be fascinating to watch this season because I've Lots of coaches, right, going into the season. We all put out lists of who's on the hot seat. But Clay Helton situation is, like, on a whole other level. I've never seen a situation where the coach, everybody thought he'd be fired after last year. Now he's back. Uh, I know there are USC fans who are actively rooting for them to lose because they want to get rid of him already. So every week, starting with this game against Fresno State this week, which is no pushover, uh, is going to be a referendum on his job. It's going to make for quite a soap opera. It'll be interesting to watch. Who are some of these teams in the top 10, top 15 you're just flat out not buying? Because, you know, these preseason polls, they're fun. For, you know, they're like they're like the pre-internet clickbait. You know, like before the internet, we'd buy magazines to read about the pre. But 
I mean, sometimes it just seems so silly. Uh, it seems like we're, the, you know, especially the coaches want to, the coaches really, they're so focused on their own teams. Do they know? Regardless, when you look at the top 25 this year, either poll, whatever, um, are there some teams you're not really buying? Are there some teams you're looking at and down the list a little bit you think are higher up? What did you think about the first poll this year, and how would you kind of stewardize it a little bit? Um, I was really puzzled at, you know, with, with what's going on with Michigan, how we've gone from just the worst possible ending to their season last right. year to yeah. everybody seven. talking back right. in, talking themselves back into them being a top seven team. You know, maybe that happens, but I'm just not sure what that's based on at this point other than blind faith. Um, I think the hype for Texas A&M is, is a year ahead of where it should be. Jimbo Fisher definitely doing all the right things there. I think if you're betting on him there, you know, you'd be smart to, to buy their stock. He, he will he will get them in contention. They're just not there yet. He, he's only had a chance to, to recruit one full class. They, they have some areas where they're really strong in, but they uh, definitely aren't there talent and depth-wise yet at some others. Tough and they schedule, just got too. an absolutely Ooh. brutal schedule. Yeah. Now you could say, uh, you know, should that matter? Like, should the preseason poll be a prediction, or should it just be here's who I think the best teams are, regardless of who they play? But the chances are, when you play four of the top six teams in the preseason top twenty-five, you're going to take some L's, right. and uh, they're going to have a hard time finishing as high as they're ranked. Absolutely. Um, you talked about the incoming freshmen in your column today, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, players are trying to maximize their value. Players are leaving earlier more and more. You know, players are skipping bowl games. Um, the hype of recruiting, you know, five-star guys, I feel bad for Tate Martell, right? Like, maybe he is someone who's been treated unfairly in this process. But do you, do you see freshmen as becoming more and more of a focal point of college football, both on the field and in the overall buzz and hype of it? Well, especially with quarterbacks, freshmen are just more prepared than they ever have been. The, the you know, it's the cottage industry now where if you're, uh, you know, four or five star quarterback recruit from a very early age, you're probably working with a private QB coach. You're going on the Elite 11 circuit, going to all those camps, competing against the other top quarterbacks. The offenses you're running in high school are very similar to the ones they run in college. So we're now seeing where. Traditionally, if you started a true freshman, it was because you didn't have a better option and you knew that guy's going to take his lumps. But after watching what Jake Fromm did with Georgia two years ago, what Trevor Lawrence did last year with Clemson, there's an expectation now that these guys will be able to excel from right from week one. And so obviously the the big example of that in week one will be Bo Nix, who five-star recruit from this class. He uh, is the son of a former Auburn quarterback and assistant coach. So He's going to start week one under the lights against uh, Oregon, who has Justin Herbert, one of the most established quarterbacks in the country. And I think that's just going to be increasingly be the norm. Boise State is also starting a true freshman against Florida State, which is also one of the more intriguing games of week one. So I think we got four or five that we know of now, and that's not even including that. That's just week one. And obviously, as the season goes, you'll probably see some true freshmen get promoted uh, for some of the other teams. There's always been the debate, like, in the NFL, right? Like, the first overall pick, should he be like Peyton Manning and come in right away and play, you know? Or is there something 
You know, is it more like Mahomes where you sit the year behind Alex Smith? Is that better? It's always been the debate. It seems like maybe we're going to have the debate now in college football. You know, should you be like Knicks and go right in, or is it better to be Spencer Rattler and get to have that first season behind a Jalen Hurts? Like, do you have an opinion on that, or do you think it's more of a case-by-case, player-by-player, team-by-team thing? It, it probably is a little bit case-by-case. Case. You know, like I said, Bo Nix is a five-star quarterback. That doesn't mean that he is Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is a kind of generational talent, I think. Uh, but I would say if it, it's, it's what, what you're not going to see much of anymore is guys redshirting. Because if you do that and they think they deserve, well, just transfer. So I don't think coaches go into, you know, I'm not saying this of every freshman quarterback, but of the really highly ranked guys, coaches are under no delusion that they're going to redshirt and then stay for another four years after that. They're looking to turn pro after three years if they can. So you're kind of wasting the guy if you don't play him at all as a freshman. Now, Georgia tried to do that last year and work Justin Fields in, and I didn't think that particularly added much to what they were doing. It wasn't really much of a value add, but if you can find ways to work them in. Um, I mean, look what Clemson did last year. They spent four games basically holding an audition between Kelly Ryan and Trevor Lawrence, and once they were sure Lawrence was ready, they promoted him. Boom, and yep. I think uh, that's something you're going to see a lot more of. The sportscasters are here finishing up with our longtime friend, Stuart Mandel. He's been coming on this program, as I mentioned earlier, since 2011, which I can't thank him enough for that. Uh, he's at SL Mandel on Twitter, and of course he writes for The Athletic. Stuart, just for real quick, you've been working at The Athletic for a few seasons now. Tell us about your coverage there, what you're excited about this year. You were nice enough to hook me up with Max Olson, who's been on this program, does a great job for the site. Tell me a little bit about the coverage at Athletic for college football, what you're excited about this year, where things are headed. It's hard to believe it's only our third season together uh, because it's just expanded so dramatically. We went from starting with a, a, a rather compact crew of seven writers uh, the first season, and then we started adding beat writers. We've added, you know, first we added Bruce Feldman on a national level, then we added Andy Staples this year. And then, obviously, nobody has more teams. Nobody in the media has more teams covered on a team-by-team basis. We have more than 30 teams that we have dedicated writers for, and they're doing, uh, and they're not doing traditional beat coverage in most cases. They're doing next level. Uh, what we think is more a modern approach to it. Um, a good example would be Will Salmon, our Florida writer. By the next day after that Miami game, already had up all these these uh, film review. Of, of you know, here's why Florida's running game was not able to be successful. Here's five examples why. Um, you know, you can expect more advanced coverage from those guys than maybe you would get from a traditional outlet. So between national and local, and of course the fact that the athletic covers every other sport. So I think that's what's great about the athletic is the bundle of okay, if I'm a Chicago Cubs fan who went to Iowa and has an interest in the NBA, we got all that stuff in one place for you know four ninety nine a month and even less if you find one of our eight gazillion promotions on Twitter. So we think it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, everything's there. It's all in one spot. You'll never take a two minute number two again. You'll be in there reading like I am for thirty five minutes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's knocking on the door. What are you still doing in there? I'm sorry. Uh, getting through Bruce Feldman's <laughs> four thousand word feature on a Cal safety. Yes, I'm very sorry. You got Clemson, OU, Georgia, and Alabama in the playoff. You said Georgia's your champion this year, correct? I do. You know, the playoff feels pretty unoriginal, um, but at least I'm I'm not following the crowd on 
assuming it'll be Clemson or Alabama. Georgia is just as talented as those teams. They've Kirby Smart's been building this thing for a few years. It's just a matter of when are they going to break through? They came awfully close the last two years, so I see no reason why they can't take the next step this year. Maybe they were a little nasty about what happened last year, getting clipped off by OU there at the end, too. Maybe they got a little chip uh, coming up. What about, give me a couple for the Heisman, a couple guys. Usually the Heisman goes to somebody that you're not talking about before the season. So, you know, I think it's kind of a co-award going into the season between Tua and Trevor Lawrence. But I just have this feeling that everybody will gravitate to some some up-and-comer. This guy is established, but necessarily hasn't gotten as much attention as those two at this point, and that's Sam Ellinger. What he did at Texas, I think he snuck up on people because Texas, as you remember, you know, week one last year lost to Maryland, and he played terrible. And I think a lot of people just maybe didn't even see them again until uh, Red River when they beat OU in the Big 12 title game. He very quietly ended up having an exceptional season. He is a guy who I think could lead. If, if Texas ends up winning the Big 12 or contending for a playoff spot, you know, he'll obviously be the face of that, and, and that would put him in strong Heisman contention. And you know what? As an OU guy, he's the first guy they've had in a while that it scares me when he comes out. You know what I'm like? I, I'm like, oh, this guy's, oh man, you know, like, he's a problem here. Let, let's, it doesn't help that, you know, there's Wee quarterbacks last year who came out on the field. I know you is a problem with that defense, but you know, he's the first guy in a while I just feel nervous about. And I will say this, Stuart, we were on, we, me and you were on Kyler Murray last year. We were talking about him in this same spot last year as a potential yep. dark horse. Um, we had that one, you and I. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You're still podcasting, right? Plug that. Yeah, Bruce and I do the Audible every Monday during the season, and uh, you can get that wherever you get this podcast. This the Audible will be there as well. Stuart, listen, I can't thank you enough for doing this with me. We had a little bit of a scheduling thing earlier in the month, and you're still nice enough to come on um, despite that. And you've been doing this with me since 2011. Who knows what you've ever gotten out of it? Probably nothing, uh, but I really appreciate Not it. Not true. I really appreciate it. I do. Thanks so much, Steve. Okay. Um, you know, feel free to call me anytime, not just the start of the season. Yeah. Um, next scandal, me and you. <laughs> we'll take it next back. Scandal. Let's yeah, we'll take it back to the, the old playoff. school. All right, sounds good, buddy. Uh, All right. Enjoy the season. Thanks, you too. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I would like to thank the great Stuart Mandel for joining us today He's got Oklahoma in the playoffs again, that'd be nice Appreciate you very much there, Stuart. Uh, thank you for coming on. Book club update. All right, this is what's going on. Really cool thing. We made a friend. All right, we made a friend in the publishing industry, and that's always a good thing. Uh, her name is Megan Wilson. She works at uh, one of the big publishing houses in New York. She's the associate director of publicity there, and she's got us on her list. And unsolicited uh, came a book that I cannot wait to read and to feature uh, in this book club. It's called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America by Albert Chen, uh, who's from Sports Illustrated. 
Uh, we got a copy of the book in the mail. I'm going to read it. We're going to have Albert on. And I want to thank Megan uh, for believing in this podcast and uh, sending me books unsolicited. She, of course, is who we worked with on the Dodgers book. Uh, they Bleed Blue by Jason Turbo. So uh, thanks to Megan. Appreciate that very much. Again, the book is called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America. It's by Albert Chen, and it comes out in bookstores on September 10th. Another book that I'm really excited about, I spoke with the publisher, uh, Gene Wojciechowski, who's been on this show before. He has a book coming out called No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach, and it's the Bob Stoops book. Gene was the uh, the one who wrote it with Bob, and I cannot wait to uh, to get into this. And two copies are headed my way, which I'm really excited about. This also is released on September 10th. So we got two books for September, The Billion Dollar Fantasy, The High Stakes Game Between FanDuel and DraftKings, and of course we have No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach by Bob Stoops. I'm really looking forward to both of those books. Uh, A couple other things. Our friend Rob Mish has a book coming out about gambling as well. He says that's in the mail, so we'll get on that right away when that uh, shows up. I think that's an October book. And our friend Ed Sherman has a book coming out about the Big Ten. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to work on that one with him as well. Uh, love promoting stuff for Rob and, of course, Mr. Sherman. Uh, also, we got to get to Brof and the Blake J. Harris book. We'll do that uh, as soon as the football preview stuff kind of dies down a little bit. But a lot of exciting stuff for the book club. I'm excited about all that. Uh, let me know if you want to copy any of this stuff, the sportscasters at gmail.com. I'm long overdue to get to the bookstore or excuse me to the, uh, what do you call it? The post office. So I can send some of these books out. If I promised you something and you haven't got it, please email me the sportscasters at gmail.com and remind me it's been a little bit of a crazy year uh, and it may have slipped my mind. And if it did, I apologize and I'll get it right out to you. All right, let's take a break, and let's do one of my favorite things that I do every year in August, and that's Talk Saints football. We're doing it with Mike Triplett from ESPN. Let's take a break, and we will be joined by Mike. Our next guest today... He's a Big Ten guy. Went to Iowa. And I first started reading him when he was with the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. Uh, but today he's with ESPN Nation covering the Saints. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike Triplett. What's up, Mike? How you doing today, man? Doing great. How you doing? Good. I'm really excited uh, to talk about the Saints. Um, I'm nervous, and I'll tell you why in a second. But before we get to that, what's going on in New Orleans with like, is there newspapers anymore, or what happened there? Um, I don't know if you want to explain to me and the listeners, because, like, there was the Times-Picayune, and then I know it was only a couple days a week, and now it's like nobody's there anymore. Like, what's going on? What's the landscape of New Orleans and media and, and uh, newspapers and things like that? Well, it's interesting, um, <laughs> to say the least, and, and very unique. I worked at the times became for for my first 10 years after i moved here first yeah. covering lsu and then covering the saints and i read you that and all the time yeah like, you and jeff yeah 
Yeah, like yeah. Uh, like a lot of newspapers in about 2012, they went through a lot of layoffs and cutbacks, um, uh, and you know cut cut the size of their newsroom in half, uh, which unfortunately is a reality of our business in in the newspaper business. And then uh, a lot of the former employees went to work for the Baton Rouge Advocate, which started up a New Orleans edition. Um, because around that same time as when the Times Picayune started only home delivering a few days a week, and then the, the Baton Rouge Advocate and the New Orleans Advocate had a local ownership and started saying, well, we'll be a daily newspaper for you, and people like that, and, and you know, this rivalry ensued. And then you fast forward a few years later, the Advocate wound up buying out the Times Picayune, um, and now will take the name... Um, and you know the what's crazy it's a completely different newsroom full of different employees i mean it's a different organization they probably hired maybe 10 or 15 former times picune employees but if you were here six years ago you had a daily newspaper called the times picune and if you're here in two years you're going to have a daily newspaper called the times picune without necessarily realizing that it's a completely different outlet that bought it out i mean Wow. There's some good things for the people here. Now there's a daily newspaper again, and now it's locally owned, and people love that. But it was obviously heartbreaking for the 100-plus employees who, who lost their job, and a lot of them are still out looking, and, and some really good people. So it's a tough reality of our business, and, and it was more dramatic here than uh, than most places even. So do they have someone like on the beat, someone down there with you guys watching yeah, oh, all yeah, that? Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, it's a full, you know, I mean, for a while, we had the luxury of two um, papers and, and, you know, a newspaper competition. If you were a Saints fan reading, reading Saints stuff, you had, you know, two full-time papers for about four or five years there with, uh, with good staffs, and now it's back down to one. But then again, now there's also me, the I'm ESPN reporter. The Athletic has built up a big staff here. Um, USA Today, Gannett uh, has hired a full-time writer who used to work at the Times-McEwen, so... There's probably, if you're just following on Twitter and don't really know what outlet is what, you probably have as many full-time Saints reporters as you ever have, right. even though it's down to just one newspaper. Yeah, I mean, the WWF was always better when there was WCW, right? So there's nothing wrong with uh, <laughs> with competition, but it just seems strange to me, and probably to you as well, that if you're going to start this big venture, and I'm sure it's more complicated and whatever, but like, man, I want... I want I want players like Jeff Duncan on my team. Like, you know what I mean? Like for me as a fan who lives out of town, man, I'm reading you on ESPN. I'm reading Jeff and Larry and cat is back right on athletic. And, um, I'm not even thinking about the paper right now. What I'm thinking about when I think about the paper, I'm thinking, wow, something happened there and everyone left. Oh, Either they were, you know, that's what, that's what's in my mind is, wow, all these people are gone. Either they were fired or laid off or they left because it's like, that's the perception that's kind of laying out there. And for me, I'm like shrugging my shoulders saying, eh, that's all right. All these people I like, they're just over here now. I'll just go over there. Well, now that is not unique to New Orleans. I right. mean, uh, oh yeah, it happens here in Buffalo who, too. Who, yeah. you know, I'm reading people in all the other NFL cities, especially some stuff I do with fantasy, uh, where where you know I'm reading what people are writing in other cities. 
you 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 name it, you put your finger on the map, and this person who I read at this paper for ten years is now at the Athletic or ESPN or you know keeping up. You know, people don't leave their cities or their teams or their Twitter handles, but you just glance at their Twitter handle. Oh, I didn't realize they don't work where they used to work anymore. Unfortunately. Uh, that is uh, very much a reality for, for people in this business. But, yeah, no, I'm not going to shortchange, though, the work. That, I mean, the, the Times-Picune advocate conglomerate that they have now, they still do have – I mean, they're cover covering um, the Saints as closely as ever. I mean, they probably got four – and, and actually, uh, they've got – you know, now that the Saints are practicing, um, you know, when they're doing their joint training camp practices in California, they had more people there than anyone. Herbie T.O.P. is back after – Working at NFL.com for a while, he is back there as their daily beat writer. Amy Just is a new employee who used to work for the Times Picayune. Um, you know, they have Rod Walker, who's been a columnist, who's been on the beat. So, I mean, they still cover it full time. But you're right; it's not maybe the people that have all been doing it for 10, 12 years in a row. The names you're as familiar with, but they're they're covering it as diligently as ever, and they still got good people doing it. You were saying how that happens in all cities. It was wild here, man. We had so like uh, this guy Mike Harrington. He stayed at the Buffalo News, and just about everyone else went to uh, Athletic. And there was like these guys were like fighting on Twitter, and I heard some <laughs> like battles in the press box, like Tim Graham and Mike Harrington squaring off. It was like wow, this is wild. You know, this is wild stuff going on in the sports media. Is that, is that how you get your pro wrestling? Yeah, exactly. Wrestling? It was truly like <laughs> comparison. Yeah, that. like Hulk Hogan showed up on WCW and all hell broke loose in <laughs> Buffalo. But um, wow, interesting. Thank you for that. Um, let's transition to the yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's transition to the Saints. You don't have to sell their paper anymore. I didn't mean to put you in that position. Um, but that, yeah, that was really no. That's yeah. look. Hey, I used to work for the paper, and it means a lot to me. But I, it also means a lot to me that, I mean, obviously, uh, I work for someone else now. I work for ESPN after I worked for the paper, and I, you know, I've always tried to build that brand too. That you know, people people follow me because they want to know what I think, and and hopefully that carries over from place to place. So I, I, I like hearing that readers think that way too. That you know, they get to know individual writers and their perspectives and stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Saints. Here's what, here's, I'm going to say this, what makes me nervous. Um, I've always felt like they're better when they're not front runners, that front runner has never been a great spot for them. And also I remember sitting in the same room just a few years ago, uh, with talking to, maybe it was you, maybe it was, you know, whatever, someone doing, doing the annual August Saints spot. You know what I mean? With someone. Yeah. And saying, like, hey, this is the best Saints team in the history of August. Like, I don't think we've ever had a team. Oh, uh, I know what year that was. Yeah, and then they... <laughs> what year that was the year it all fell apart. <laughs> and it was my most hated Saints team of all time. Like, not only did they not play well, I just hated that team. You know, it was like Brandon Browner was on yep. the team, and this is like... 2014? Yeah, 14. When the three-year slide began, yeah? Yeah. Oh, just awful. And I remember how I felt, you know, Bird, I think, was coming. That was going to be Bird's first year, maybe, you know. It's like, man, this guy's going to be great. (laughs) I think he played, like, one good game the opening day against Atlanta. And then, like, I don't think he made another play to, like, Christmas, like, his last year or something. I think he had two picks against the Bucks on Christmas or something. Uh, But anyway, um, I feel that way again. I feel like, wow, maybe this is the best, you know, Saints team in August. And just things like that make me nervous 
Um, you know, because two years ago when all right, well, I'm, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll calm me down. One thing that makes yeah. you feel better. All right, one, the one thing that makes you feel better is I completely agree with the concept you're talking about, which yeah. is fat and happy. You know, yeah. um, and that 2014 Saints team was very fat and happy. It's the second year with Rob Ryan as defensive coordinator. It was a year after uh, Junior Gallette and Keenan Lewis and. Uh, Kenny Vaccaro and all these defensive guys had breakout years. Um, they all thought they were going to the Pro Bowl. Uh, you know, the, there were quotes. I think it was Archie Manning who said, "This is the best roster the Saints have ever had." It was just, it was like Super Bowl hangover after they had only gone two rounds into the playoffs before. And and they admitted that the culture really got away from them. That you know that that you yeah. know. Marvel that 10 years with the Sean Payton and Drew Brees, they'd just gotten too comfortable. I think they learned a lot of lessons from that. But last year, I was making those comparisons. I think last year was the year that could have been 2014 all over again. That rookie class, Kamara, Thomas, Lattimore, everybody put them in the Pro Bowl as rookies, telling them how great they were. Right. Well, Thomas was in his second year, I should say. But the rookie class, everybody picking them to go to the Super Bowl Last year reminded me of that 2014 season that you're talking about, and they handled it very well. They they were the front runners last year. Remember, Peyton put the banner up. His his slogan to the team was "Prove them right." Right to try to yep. adopt, them, prove them wrong, chip on your shoulder, even though everyone's picking you to go to the Super Bowl. And they went 13 and three, obviously, and and did everything right. You know, uh, up until the way the season ended. So last year, I think, was the danger of everyone showing up and, and having everyone tell them how great they are. Uh, and they proved that they could handle that. So, uh, you know, I think I think this team has, has lived through that, what you're talking to. And I think they've proven they can handle being front runners. And now you add the urgency that they must be feeling knowing that, all right, we missed two really good opportunities. We don't know how many more there are going to be. We, I mean, they know they've got to win now. There's no there's no easing into this offseason. You know how Delvin Delvin Bro when he was on the team, and any time he ever made a play, and came up, the you'd hear like right away be like, "This guy was going to LSU, and then he broke his neck, and now he went to this." You know, like it was like there's certain players where this there's this one thing that always is there, and it always gets brought up, and it drives me nuts. And and for this the 2019 Saints, I feel like the NFC Championship game last year. Is that thing that whenever they're brought up, whenever anything happens, it's like that highlight, that image. I want to, I want to get as far as far away from it as possible. I want to to go away. I want to pretend it didn't happen. And I'm more like, I felt the Super Bowl hangover in 2010. Is there a such thing as a bad call hangover? Uh, you know, like. How how is the team reacting? Uh, look, to the... I think it's a great question. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a great question, and I think we're going to find out together. Uh, okay, I think it would be with a Super Bowl hangover or a bad call hangover. I think the hardest time to live through a through a hangover is February, March, April, May, June OTAs, getting back to weightlifting. You know, oh my god. We just played in that game. We just lost. It felt like two weeks ago, and now we we're reporting for conditioning over. next week in yeah. April. I think, yeah, we were thirteen and three. We were winning the NFC Championship game, and now we're zero and zero, and we have to do our conditioning test. Like, and I cannot say for sure 
how they did in the weight room. This, you know, I just don't right. know. You never know yep. for sure. I don't think the coaches know for sure. But it all seems okay now. Um, um, now's the good stuff. You know, I don't think a hangover affects how they're going to play against the Houston Texans on on Monday Night Football at home in the season opener. Um, I think I think it might have affected their off seasons or their mentality. But but you know, so far I I see no warning signs that this team just looks like it doesn't have it or anything like that. Uh, I did feel the Super Bowl hangover a little bit. I don't think I feel it right now, but I cannot pretend to be an expert on that. And the other thing I can't know for sure is, and this is where it really fell apart for the 2014 team is I, we have no idea how this locker room would handle a one and three start. Like we don't know how Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara and Marshawn Lattimore and Ryan Ramchek et cetera, et cetera, would ever handle one and three start because it's never happened to them. Right. Um, we don't know if they point fingers at each other. We don't know if they'd say, I'm not getting the passes that I want, or, you know, this guy's not helping me in coverage because they've never faced that kind of adversity. So maybe something could happen like then when they're like, man, we should have won the Super Bowl last year. Now we're one and three this time. I don't know. But if they get off to a reasonably start, I think they can move past it. Let me ask you about a couple of guys real quick. Uh, we talked about the rookie class. You mentioned them earlier and from two years ago, the rookie class from two years ago. I remember after that season, Lattimore, I, I have a friend who's a Jags fan, and we were like in that Lattimore or Ramsey best corner mode talk. Yeah. And I wouldn't have I, – I, I made sure to avoid that guy last year. Like there was definitely <laughs> – Well, he was avoiding you. <laughs> well, that's true too. Both guys definitely took a step back for sure last year. But I don't care about Ramsey. I care about Lattimore. Um, I think he yeah. admitted at some point last year that he got a little cocky maybe. He didn't train or didn't watch film as much as he should have. And I think he did pick up. He made that huge play in the Eagles game, right? Which, yeah, maybe right place, right time. But, hey, you know. Being in the right place is, is part of it all. Um, what about Lattimore this August? Do you notice anything about him that did you notice anything last year? Anything seem off? Is it different this yeah. year? What about Lattimore going into his third he year did, as a pro? He, uh, he did have uh, kind of rough practices performances in training camp last year, and to the point where we were right now about how unusual it was to see him um, struggling a bit on the practice field, and that is what he admitted later that that he didn't felt like he, he practiced it hard or treated every practice rep like he was a Super Bowl, like he should have um, really around training camp time. Uh, so uh, I, I think he admitted that he went through a little bit of that last year, and I think it has been better this year. So he made a couple more plays. The kind of things he's saying, or at least that he, he's well aware that this is put up or shut up time for him. I, speaking of the athletic, I think Larry Holder just had a, a piece that yeah, he posted he recently on Latimer mm-hmm. saying a lot of things like that. Um, so that's all good. And the other positive with Lattimore, I think, is if last year was a down year, he was still very much a number one cornerback. He was not the dominant corner who was one of the best in the league as a rookie, but a top 10 corner, I would say, probably without going down the list and comparing him to everyone else with just a little bit more inconsistency, obviously, especially in week one where they had that nightmare game against the Buccaneers last year. So I think he's still got that, you know, four, three something speed. The physicality, the size, the mentality to be in the number one corner. I think you still got to feel really good about the number one cornerback position for the Saints. Uh, even even if you're not necessarily having that, he's proven he's better than Jalen Ramsey. He's the best corner in the league. Conversation. Uh, I, I think that's a position you got to feel really good about. And and 
you could potentially be having that conversation again at the end of this year if he lives fully up to his potential. Second year in a row, first round pick is Davenport, right? I mean, if you look at it like that. <laughs> uh, first year, I knew he was going to be a bit of a project. Um, the only, the only, the only problem for me last year was seemed like every time I noticed him is because he's hitting the quarterback in the head. You know, like one of those like glancing blows because he didn't pull up. Just real silly kind of mental stuff. Um, he's important though, uh, especially with Rankins out. I know it's not the same position, but hey, we need that defensive line. Uh, Jordan needs the help. What do you think about Davenport in his second year? Do you see a maturation? Do you see an improvement this this camp with him? I, I think I think you made the two most important points. One is. He was supposed to be a raw developmental guy last year. Right, uh, I expected that. I would not agree with anyone making a judgment on what he is based on what he was last year. I mean, that, that's what they expected. Him coming from Texas San Antonio and just a few years removed from switching from wide receiver to defensive end. There's so many ways I expect him to grow. He admitted that his confidence needed to grow in addition to learning the defense and all that. And then obviously he had that toe injury around midseason and played through it and needed surgery at the end of the year. And and that really slowed him down. So everything, full off-season confidence, growing into his body, learning the defense, healthy, all those things should point to a better year two than year one. But you're also right that they need him this yeah. year to be really good. Last year, he was the rotational third defensive end who played less than 50% of the snaps on pass rush downs, while Alex Okafor played you know, 70% of the snaps pretty close to it. Now they don't have Okafor anymore, and they did not replace him with anyone else proven at defensive end. So it is Cam Jordan, Marcus Davenport, and question marks at defensive end. So they need Davenport to not also be a question mark himself. And that is a lot to ask. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how many rundowns he's going to play. I don't know if he's ready to be a double-digit sack guy and how much inconsistency he'll face. But they could really use that, you know, they could use him to go from what he was last year to an absolute stud is what they really need. But at the very least. Welcome. Mike, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I lost you for a second. Uh, is Cam, no. is Cam the kind of guy who takes uh, Davenport under his wing and, and, and is a, a teacher? Is he, is he that kind of player? Or, you know, I mean, sometimes you hear about like, Rodgers and Favre and it's combative and then you know other times you hear about these guys at the same position and they work together the star really brings the other guy along what's what's Cam and, and Davenport's relationship like is there anything there yeah it's not what you were talking about I mean there's nothing adversarial about it at all um you know his his leadership style is more you know being <laughs> you know the uh the fun guy in the room, you know, he'll have a nickname for everyone, joking around with everyone. Um, but I think that's an area where Jordan has really grown. Um, even since when we were talking about 2014, when he was still maybe a third-year player himself back then, uh, to be an elected captain. He was, you know, at that time he hadn't been a captain yet. He hadn't been a team leader. And I think he's really embraced that role more and knows how important that is with Davenport. So I think that's definitely a positive relationship for Davenport to have. Did you get? Did you cringe or did you get nervous at all or did any? What was your feeling when you seen the the Mike Thomas contract? I mean, I know. Look at paying Mike Thomas. <laughs> what I mean, that's the guy to pay, I guess, right? But just part of me when I when I when I 
I was like, oh man, it's a lot of money. I hope he can he earn that much money. You know what I mean? It's like it's almost so out there. Right. Like, what was it? Ten million dollars for Jimmy Graham was like the highest the Saints had ever paid for. Yeah. Him. Skill guy, and they didn't want to pay that. They got rid of Jimmy Graham one year later, <laughs> right? And and I mean, I don't know. What what was your reaction to the Thomas contract? I, I hope you know what I'm going at here. Well, nothing against Thomas at yeah, all. I no, love the I guy. Mean, Fantastic, it's, but it's it's uh, it was unavoidable. First of all, yeah. Um, I think my first thing I wrote in my comments would be nice if the Saints would put their foot down. Could could put their foot down and say, well, we just don't pay that much for receivers. You know, best of luck in your career. We're going to be fine without you. But they couldn't. They they need this guy badly more than more than you know. You know, I've covered the Saints throughout the whole Peyton Breeze era, and they've never needed a pass catcher like they need Michael Thomas. I mean, he had 125 catches last year. No other receiver or tight end had more than 35. Um, I mean, it's insane how much they need him. But they also love him. I mean, you know, they say privately, just what they say publicly, how you know how hard he works. You know you know, all his traits, everything you see, um, you know, he, he's, he's at the, you know, he's at this level. He is, he's one of the top five receivers in the league, whatever Julio Jones and Odell Beckham and uh, DeAndre Hopkins. And those guys are going to make, that's what, that's what you have to pay for Michael Thomas. And the good news is you don't have to do it reluctantly. You know, you don't have to do it like, Oh man, I wish his contract wasn't due because do we really want to invest in this guy? Like, you know, Right. I compare it to the draft. If you have the third pick in the draft, you you draft Michael Thomas. But, you know, you might you might want to say my rule is I don't pay I don't draft receivers with the number. He's he's an elite one. You know, you'd rather you'd rather pay him than someone else. But yeah, of course it stinks. <laughs> you have to pay that much money. I mean, they just had to pay Cam Jordan eighteen plus million right. next year. Alvin Kamara will probably be holding out until they decide whether they're going to pay him or not. The year after that, Marshawn Lattimore, Ryan Ramchek, and Teron Armstead comes due again. Right. The bad uh, news about drafting well. Sheldon Rankins right. and Mario Davis, Larry Warford. Problem is, when you have seven or eight pro bowlers on your team, um, it becomes really expensive. And at some point, they might have a, a tough decision to make. So far, they've never let anyone go that was a core, key, essential player, and they're like, shoot, we ran out of money, you know? They they make money, you know. They cheat the salary cap. Yeah, they, they're magicians. They find that, ways to for sure. push it back. Yeah, yeah, they're magicians. <laughs> but um, but this was this was, to make a long story short, this one was a no brainer. Of course, of course, any team would wish that they don't have to pay the receiver nineteen point two five million dollars a year. Um, but it was a no brainer that Thomas is worth that much, you know, in the current pay scale that the NFL has set for wide receivers, basically. He's worth that much. You're not you're not hoping he's going to be worth that much. He is. And they they need it. They they could not say, like they did with Jimmy Graham or Brandon Cooks, you know what, we think our offense will be fine, so we're gonna spend our money somewhere else. They they need him to have a good offense. So and and really the fact that it was only a five day holdout and that he wasn't asking for like twenty two million so he could get more than Julio Jones or something. I mean, it really was about as painless as a twenty million dollar per year contract could be. Yeah, it was beautiful. I remember I actually told my wife, I'm like, Well, at least it didn't turn into a Jimmy Graham thing where I felt like the relationship was ruined after the fact. You know what I mean? Like Right. Right. Uh right. this the sportscasts are here with uh Mike Triplett, a few minutes left. He's at ESPN, he covers the Saints uh for their NFL nation. 
uh, part of part of the ESPN conglomerate. It's awesome to spend this time with us. One more big one, then I'll hit you on a couple quick ones and we'll let you go. I know you got only got a few minutes left. I know he's your colleague, but Bill Barnwell drives me nuts. This guy has been writing the death column of Breeze and Dayton <laughs> for years now. Look, at, I don't even think I'm being unfair to him. I, I think he's wrote that column several times. Um, it's It almost feels like, hey, I'm going to just keep writing this column, and one of these days, you know, eventually it'll be right. Um, and he just put out a big thing, like, analyzing every time Breeze sneezed on the field, and I, I honestly, I couldn't even get through it. Um I am going to be the last person in the world off of the Drew Brees bandwagon. I know that. I understand that. This guy has made every single one of my sports dreams come true. Um, I feel like I could live 100 more years and watch 100 more Saints seasons and never love a player as much as I love Drew Brees. Uh, so I get that, and I'm, I'm, I'm qualifying you know, my stance with that. Um, and I understand Barnwell, you know, doesn't have that emotional attachment to a player. Emotional attachment. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I get that totally. But where do you see Breeze, August 2019, turning 40 years old? You know, all this talk of, hey, look, he only played 10 good games last year. And then he, like, fell off the earth. He had that bad yeah. pass on the first play against the Eagles. You know, but the last pass I remember was a really nice ball downfield to tag in to set up the whole disaster uh, that would follow a few minutes later. Um, so I'm still thinking about that one, and, and I still think he's great, and I think he's going to be great uh, again this year, and I think he's going to be in the MVP conversation again, and uh, he's just my guy. But um, tell me what you agree and what you disagree with. Where do you stand on Breeze going into um, yeah. this year with the Saints? Well, there's a lot to unpack there uh, yeah. because it's it's a question that a lot of people are asking for good reason right now. Um, and I will say this: I, I agree that if you're a Saints fan who's read Bill Barnwell, you might feel like he has it, you know, has has it out to get the Saints a couple times. And I think one area where he has not been proven right was the way they manage their salary cap because they just keep the cap keeps going up and they keep getting away with it. Um, but I disagree with you on this column. I think. I think that was, I mean, I think we can all stop writing and talking about it and say, just read this column because everything you want to bring up, but Breeze was great for three months. Uh, but I thought Breeze took a hit in the Atlanta game and never looked the same again, but he can't throw the deep ball anymore, but he dove into everything completely fair and completely thorough and completely detailed. I, I thought it was a fantastic piece because it's the same question we've all been asking. And there were a lot of, ways he defended Breeze that I didn't even realize. He he said Breeze was one for nine on deep passes during that bad stretch. And Barnwell said, but actually I would say six of the eight incompletions I would rate as perfect or near perfect throws. And he pointed out that during the first 11 weeks of the season when Breeze was incredible, there was only one red zone drop by his receivers out of like 70 some throws in the red zone. And then during the bad stretch, his receiver dropped three out of 32 passes in the red zone, you know, and he pointed out, you know, why the the blocking got worse and everything. So he was completely fair. And his, he came to the same exact conclusion that I have, which is, I don't actually know. I cannot fully explain why Drew Brees played, you know, the production was so bad. I mean, it didn't just come back down to earth. It went, it went below that. It was the Dallas game, the Carolina game late in the season. It was so bad. 
that you have to wonder, geez, you know, is there a decline coming? You know, he's 40 now. But I, I think the end result is this. He's, uh, we can never expect him to play as good as he did for the first 11 weeks last season. That was an insane level. And I don't expect him to struggle as much as he did in December. I think probably his playoff performances is a pretty good comparison. You know, Philadelphia and Los Angeles games, there were a lot of good things, and, and there were some bad things. Obviously, the last two throws in the Rams game, missing that slant to Michael Thomas, the interception, what a horrible way for him to end maybe the best, one of the best seasons of his career. But I think, you know, he's not perfect, and I, I think he maybe is the best quarterback in the league, top five, if not top ten. I think he can continue to be that, you know, for three or four years by being a high-percentage guy. The deep ball was never a huge part of his game to begin with. I don't worry about that going away because I think he can complete keep completing 70 to 75% of his passes by just being smart knowing where his receivers are going to be, knowing where his defenses are going to be. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it, the extremes of last season were crazy, but I think we, you know, I still think he's a Super Bowl caliber quarterback who should be a reason for optimism that this team can still win a Super Bowl. They just got to keep guys out of his face. I hope I hope McCoy, you know, I hope he's good. Um, you know, I watch, Mike, I watch every press conference, and I wish they would mic you guys because, like, Six out of 13 questions after the, I can't hear, I don't know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to try to figure out what the <laughs> hell they're answering because we can't hear you guys. I wish, say that to whoever runs saints.com. Tell them we need mics on the press and the press conferences. People don't know what I'm talking about. I'll try to get about. that done. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> man, you know, every, I watch these, these clips around the league, you know, it's like, oh, Cam Newton walked out after two questions or, you know, this guy was this way we could put a press conference just to pick a random one out, put it in front of us. We wouldn't know if they won or lost that game. It's always the same. You know I mean? He's just so, man, I just love the guy and I'm here to die for him if he needs me to. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you a few more things, but we're out of time. I know you had to go uh, at noon your time. It's Mike Triplett. He's on ESPN.com. His stuff is awesome. One of the great Saints beat writers. What's the Twitter handle? I don't want to get it wrong on you. Just at Mike Triplett, two okay. T's at the end. At Mike Triplett, two T's at the end. You just did a really good piece I read a couple weeks ago. Help me out. I can't remember. I read so much. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember you had a, you had an awesome one, a nice deep one. Help well, me out. I dove into this Breeze question. Whereas Barnwell did the analytics, I did the what everyone's saying about him, Breeze, Joe okay. Lombardi, yeah, all right. Dayton, yeah, that's right. Teammates, uh, his trainer, Todd Durkin. Um so that one I did a, a couple weeks ago. That was a deep dive. I've done a couple of deep dives on Michael Thomas around the contract and stuff. Um, so uh, those, those are a couple of them that you might be talking about. But uh, what do you got for a record this year? I went with eleven and five. I mean, I can't pick eleven and a half wins, but right. Um, we're going to know. Well, I should say we're going to know a lot in September uh, because the schedule's so brutal in September. But they never win in September. <laughs> Right, as I say, that's Maybe a we won't month. learn anything yeah. about them, even if they struggle in September. <laughs> I know you're a fantasy guy, so I'll throw this out real quick. Um, who's yeah. your favorite Saint to draft and your least favorite? And take Breeze out of it because quarterbacks, you know, fantasy, whatever. Forget Breeze. Other than him, your favorite to draft and least favorite. Well, I'm trying to temper my enthusiasm for Jared Cook because I know he hasn't always lived up to high expectations. 
Uh, and obviously we remember that Kobe Fleener didn't in New Orleans either, but he's just making play after play on the practice field, and he's exactly what they need. Right. And, and he just had his career season in a very similar offense in Oakland. So uh, I really think he's going to thrive here. I, I think that's a fantasy prediction and a Saints prediction because they really, you know, we talked about the lack of receivers behind Michael Thomas. They need Cook to look as good in the regular season as he's looked on the practice field. I'd love and to have then, a guy. Uh, sorry, Mike. I'd love to have a guy who does that seam yeah. route that you know that Breeze and Graham just like that long touchdown in San Francisco yeah. in the playoff game was that that seam route right the seam route, but yeah. also just just the, the contested catches because, I mean, we were just talking about Breeze and, and whether you love it or hate it, you know, he's throwing short and intermediate passes. The deep dive I did on Michael Thomas, he only caught three balls more than 20 yards, you know, in the air, 20 yards down the field last year. It, 122 of his catches were within 20 yards. I mean, that's the passes that the Saints throw. Right. And, and so Cook's ability to make contested catches in the short and intermediate routes uh, is really valuable for this team, and then yeah, my fantasy. I get you know, I don't want to beat up on the. I I would not count on Traquan Smith automatically making a year two leap. Like if you look and thought, oh, he had like four hundred and some yards and five touchdowns last year. This year he ought to have seven hundred some yards and eight touchdowns. I you know I I don't know that we're going to see that yet, especially with a healthy Ted Ginn Jr. back. Traquan Smith has that ability. But I don't see, you know, the consistency yet or, or the role carved out for him where he's obviously trying at the end of your drafts. But I wouldn't be counting on him to uh, to all of a sudden be like their number two receiver putting up number two receiver numbers. Yeah, he's interesting because we'll never forget him because he caught the pass against Washington. But it's interesting, like, will he be more than that? Or will he just end up being the guy who caught the pass against Washington to break the record, you know? It's kind of an interesting right. spot. Well, he had career. those two hundred yard games. He had two hundred yard games. Was uh, it the Eagles he blew up season. against? And, yeah, like yeah, he catches for yeah. hundred some yards. Yeah. So I mean, the, you see the potential there. You right. Just, you know, we, we we haven't seen the consistency yet. That doesn't mean it'll never happen. Shoot, Robert Meacham didn't play in a game his first year. <laughs> yeah. Some guys, it doesn't just happen happen overnight for. All right, Mike. Thank you for all the time. I appreciate it. Go Saints. Hey, it's Have a fun. pleasure. Yep. All right. Later. Thank you. I'd like to thank Mike Triplett. For joining us, I also want to thank Stuart Mandel for not only being on the podcast today, but every time he's appeared since 2011. Really appreciate that. Don't forget you can find this episode and all episodes of this podcast on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also, of course, find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever podcasts are being caught by podcatchers. Now, if you're listening somewhere trying to hear us on a certain podcatcher and we're not being caught by that catcher, Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll try to fix that. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Want to give a shout-out to a few of my friends. First, my friend Peter Winson. His show is Greetings from Allentown, and that podcast is new every Thursday. For more information on that, it's at GF Allentown Pod. 
Also, Peter and I do a podcast called the Adams Division Podcast. And tomorrow, Wednesday, we are going to record part two of our top 10 sports teams of all time podcast. So we're looking forward to that. And you can look for that on the Greetings for Allentown feed and also on the Place to Be Nation feed. Uh, Place to Be Nation, a great site. They're doing an 80s music tournament right now. Uh, Also, tons of podcasts on their pop feed, on their wrestling feed. Uh, The Adams Division podcast is on the wrestling feed. I'm working on some stuff uh, about Seattle music in 1994 for a tribute to 1994, the Place to Be Nation is doing. Um, Please check out the Place to Be Nation podcast. I'm also going to be on their flagship show on in September sometime. End of September, I think uh, the 30th. Also, shout out to my buddy, Adrian Dater. Uh, Adrian has named his podcast. He's got an avalanche uh, podcast that's going to be coming out, and he named it after the trash talk that Patrick Waugh um, and Jeremy Roenick had uh, quite a few years back, and it's called... Let me get the name right. I forget exactly what the quote is. Let me look him up on Twitter here. He's at a dater on Twitter, uh, and his podcast is going to be called... He's got a lot of tweets here. Okay, here it is. Can't hear what Jeremy says, an avalanche podcast. Uh, And that will be coming soon. And if you can draw a logo for him, uh, Patrick Waugh with a Stanley Cup ring in each year, he'll pay 200 bucks for the one he likes the best. It's at adater at comcast.net for that contest. Uh, Love Adrian. Great dude. Really good friend. Colorado Hockey now.com uh, sign up if you can for that if you're into the avalanche uh, also he's got a tip jar if you want to just do something nice for a really good dude uh, most of that money goes to his travels for the avalanche and the rest goes to the food bank in his area uh, i wanted to say too it's at place number two b nation on twitter uh, to find all the stuff about the place to be nation including uh, voting on their 80 songs now I'm looking in front of me with some some votes that I need to make. So let's do this real quick. It's either Centerfold by the Jay Giles Band or George Michael's Faith. I'm going Centerfold. Uh, Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar or It's Tricky Run DMC. Oh, we're going Pat all day. Love is a Battlefield there. Free Fallen or Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics. I'm going Tom Petty, Free Fallen. Tom Sawyer by Rush or Land of Confusion. I love the song Land of Confusion by Genesis, but obviously I'm a Rush guy all day picking Rush there. Uh, I vote almost exclusively for the rock and roll songs in that. Uh, I'm here for rock and roll um, and uh, support them on that. Shout out to my brothers. They have a company called Summer Stock Hockey. Uh, check that out if you can. Just uh, you know, search Summer Stock Hockey. You'll find it. All right, enough plugs for now. Uh, Let's transition into one last thing. And on August 16th, I had my five-year anniversary, uh, which is crazy to me to think that my wedding was five years ago. What a great night it was. You know, and Tammy and I, we've always talked about how with a wedding, you make all these choices, right? You have to pick the colors, the flowers, the wedding party, the DJ, the the venue, uh, what you're going to serve. There's just all these choices to be made. And you make them all. 
and you hope you do your best and then that night you see the you see your choices kind of play out in front of you and i remember back on our wedding night we kind of said that we only made one bad choice and that was the dj who didn't work out um and that was a bummer but you know we got through that part of it even though he threatened to uh to leave um after tammy gave her a piece of uh of her mind but um I was thinking about that because we've always talked about that. And I was thinking about my life. And I was like, you know, life is a lot like that too. Where we make all these choices in life. You know, what we're going to do for a living. Where we're going to go to school. Who our friends are going to be. Make all these choices. And you hope for the best. And, you know, I've made a bunch of choices in my life. Some of them good. Some of them bad. There's one choice I'm 100% sure was an amazing one, and that was Tammy. I nailed that choice. Picking her, um, having her pick me back, thank God, uh, but just deciding to start a life with her, to build a house, to have a family together, to get married. What a great choice I made there. There isn't one person in the world who supported supports me the way she does, Loves me the way she does. Takes care of me the way she does. I'm so grateful. She's a great wife. We've had five great years so far. I still can't believe that I get to have sex with her, which is amazing. Shout out to her for allowing that. Unbelievable decision on her part. Blows my mind every time. You know, thanks to Tammy on that. Uh, I can't believe just that we have this family together. We have this life you know, sometimes I just wake up in bed and I look over and she's there and it's like, wow, you know, this is a real thing. Like, that's really my wife. And we really have this great life together. And uh, no matter what I've been through all these years, the sickness and health part, I've really tested the limits of that one. Uh, and she hasn't blinked. You know, she hasn't blinked. She's just battling with me. And she's understanding and she really gets me, you know, like, she knows when to not take me too seriously. She knows when I'm being grouchy, when to ignore me, when to take me seriously. You know, she's totally cool with me jumping on a plane in October and going to see a Saints game by myself just because I had such a shitty year and I just want to do that. And she's so cool with it. And Man, like I said, you know, we make all these decisions in life. And uh, I hope you guys and girls or whoever's listening, when you think about your decisions and the one decision you make on who you're going to spend your life with, who your soulmate's going to be, who your partner's going to be, I hope your decision was as good as mine. Because I've made a lot of mistakes in this world. I've screwed up a lot of relationships uh, with friends. Uh, I've been wrong a million times. Uh, but I got this thing right. And I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful for five years. And, um, yeah. Hopefully, 50 more, whatever. I mean, 20 years together, five years married. Let's see how far we can take this thing, I guess. Be back next week. Mm-hmm.